Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Flame, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the only woman I want to spend 24 hours with in New York City, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. It's lovely to see you in the new year. New year, in some ways, same us, but at least not for me. New year, new me. I I can say I'm saying that authentically this year. I think it's always nice to start the new year with a a fresh burst of energy and enthusiasm, like three... I can't give away the show we're done. Well, everybody knows. No, you can. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I already kind of said it. Um, okay. But we can use it as a transition. I was going to ask, like, how was Marlowe's first New Year? Did he did he make it up till midnight? Did he sleep through the night? Oh, not only did he not make it up till midnight, we didn't make it up till midnight. We had friends come cool. over, and we were watching a movie, and we were all ready with our champagne, and then it got to be 1030, and we basically were all asleep on the couch. And we were like, all right, that that pretty much wraps up the tone of 2022. You know, I had a fun, you know, I was gonna say I had a fun New Year's, but for a while, that was my MO on New Year's year, because I was like, people build this up too much. It's like, not worth it. Yeah, yeah. Not worth it. But I had a lovely New Year's this year. It is. Well, especially not to, this is really going to throw our audience a curveball. um, But uh, I was also trying to watch the Georgia-Ohio State game at the same time. And the kicker, like, really flubbed that um shanked that last kick literally right as it was like the countdown was happening and that kick was happening and it was so massive it was like what an iconic moment of culture for basically straight people and me (laughs) (laughs) straight men and me (laughs) and you know what you can say that and i'm choosing to believe it was a high kick that he flubbed so speaking of high kicks annika why don't you remind us of the clue you gave us for the show we'll be getting to know this episode? Well, the clue that I gave for the show that I almost gave away by saying you had the energy of three young sailors with a day in New York um, was that in a nightclub scene in this show, there is a vamp that was used as the basis for a song in a later show by the same composer. And That is the nightclub sequence of the show On the Town, written by Leonard Bernstein and Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Um, That vamp in the nightclub scene later became Conga, the score, uh, the song in Wonderful Town. So it was a little bit, it's like a pre-Easter egg that they put in this show. Not Gloria Estefan's Conga. That would be amazing. I actually really love that song. <laughs> so that will bring us to the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of On the Town in under 60 seconds. And uh, it is possible, obviously, famously peaked um, last episode with Hairspray. I actually do feel like there's a world in which I'll do okay here. I also might be really terrible because, full disclosure, I don't know this show as well as um, Annika does. Uh, so I'm I'm getting to know it like many of you are probably are, although I have seen it. So I should be, I should do better, but whether or not I will is a different matter. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about that because I feel like this is a show that both has very little plot or- And a lot. A great like, deal of plot. Yeah. It's like, so. I can either, I'm either gonna be really simple or I'm gonna get lost in some details and yes. I'll get lost in the wilderness. 
yeah, this will either take you 15 seconds or 15 minutes. And let's let's see where it falls. But I do right. know that the Bronx is up and the battery's down. All right. Yeah. <laughs> People riding a hole in the ground. All right. 24 hours in 60 seconds. Three, two, one, go. Okay. So you've got three sailors who um, get off their boat. Um, they're, they're docked at the, at the dock and they've got 24 hours in New York. Uh, and basically, and so that's uh, Gaby, because uh, he's coming, uh, Chip and Ozzy, who are the three sailors. And so they get on the subway uh, and Gaby kind of falls in love with this poster girl who is like Miss Turn style, this like promotional thing. So he, he basically condenses his friends to go on a mission to go find her so that he can take her on a date tonight. They all split up. And as they split up, Ozzy meets Claire at the museum. Uh, and she's, and she, Claire DeLune, I, I'm obsessed with her name, and Chip meets Hildy, the taxi driver, and he, they both are going to try to dress her up as Ivy. He meets Ivy, but she rejects him, um, and then they both come back to him with their girl dressed up as uh, as Ivy, and um, and it's like, oh, sad, but then basically uh, they do go on a date. She's like, no, I do want to go on a date with you, and they get arrested. Uh, <laughs> I kind of, uh, I really got caught up in trying to remember the names, because I'm so stressed about remembering the names of the characters. So yeah. that was not my best. But basically, so they are going to go into the act two. They like go clubbing, basically. Um, and Gaby's still sad. And then Ivy does show up. Um, uh, and Or no, they find out she's on Coney Island. They find out she's on Coney Island. They go out to Coney Island. He like rips a part of her dress off or something, right? That like she's already scantily clad. And so then she's like wanted for indecent exposure. And then Claire's like womp womp of a... Um, I understand guy Pitkin, Pitkin, right? Yes, is that his name? Judge, Judge Pitkin. Um, is like, is like, tries to help them out, but doesn't really, but kind of does. And then basically they all say goodbye and the guys get on the ship and shows up. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yep. Right? Yeah. I mean, okay. pretty much. I mean, yeah, it's like four guys, four guys, three guys who come to New York and want to meet girls and see New York and they do that and then they get back on the boat. Sort of. Sort of. With so, a lot of uh, small hijinks. bits in between. Hijinks and Sue. Hijinks and Sue. Um, okay, so with that, that'll bring us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the show's big idea. What is the author's purpose and what is the message they're trying to communicate? So for me, um, this is an old fashioned musical in like so many ways, right? Like, and we'll get into that in, in um, Back to Before and putting it together. Like it is one of the first integrated musicals um, inspired by Oklahoma. But so in some ways, like I think the easy temptation, I think is to say like, like the thing that unites the characters is love. It's a big like kind of everyone's falling in love or trying to fall in love and, you know, dates and, and whatnot. But that feels like really simplistic to me for what actually is going on it doesn't really unite all the characters like yes it's romantic but it's not really that so i do kind of feel like there my answer if i had to give it in a word would be that this is actually a show about time and like the juxtaposition of time versus love and how much time you get with those you love um i feel like that's actually the undercurrent and i that's really um i don't know that it's the driving force necessarily for every character but that is the, I'm not sure that there is something that really um, 
unites all of the characters and in the same way that i like to try to i like to try to find it i'm not sure that there is that um but i may that also might just be because i'm getting to know it and i'm pretty fresh to it so um if you have a thing that you think unites all the all the characters you can shoot me a, uh, you can at me on social media but annika what would you say uh what would you say is the, is the show's why yeah, I mean, I certainly think time is a big part of it. And I think also, which we'll talk about later, uh, the presence of war is making that even more um, poignant and present. Uh, but I would say also there's sort of a message, and this ties into that too. If there had to be a message of the show, I would say it's it's sort of go for it, um, which I think is related to that time thing, because I think the idea is sort of, you you know don't have a ton of time and so you should go find the girl that you see on the subway and try to you know have a date with her like I think there is a kind of subtle message about like you should live your life like you have limited time um which is certainly true for these sailors because they do have limited time they have 24 hours on shore leave but also you know on a larger scheme they might have limited time um so I'd say that that is uh very apt time yes and also just grabbing the moment and seizing the day and um living your life which does feel like you know again in like the city that never sleeps right like that is like i think that's it's it is a love letter to new york in so many ways because of that it's the city of adventure and, and all that so yeah yeah i think it's definitely as someone who's grown up in new york and lived here almost my entire life it is one of my favorite portraits of new york because i think it does really capture this city's energy and and the excitement of being here in a way that other shows that claim to do so don't quite do so so that is a big part of it as well so annika why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of on the town we can never go back to before so one of the people who is very involved in the making of on the town is Jerome Robbins, who we haven't really talked that much about on this podcast yet, even though he is a Titanic figure in the American musical theater. So he was, and I'm just going to borrow this from Wikipedia because, I mean, they just look at the stack of things. An American dancer, choreographer, film director, theater director, and producer who worked in classical ballet, on stage, film, and television. So, you know, one of those people who just did a million billion things. Um, so he was born Jerome Wilson Rabinowitz on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to Polish immigrant parents. And side note, one of the things I love about this show is that you three of the four major uh, creators of this show were born in three different boroughs of New York City. Uh, Jerry Robbins was in Manhattan on the Lower East Side. Uh, Betty Comden was born in Brooklyn to Russian immigrants, and uh, Adolf Green was born in the Bronx to Hungarian immigrants. So they really kind of are coming from different parts of New York, capturing a lot of New York uh, for this thing. And uh, Leonard Bernstein kind of feels like a New Yorker, even though he was technically born in Massachusetts. So he gets a sort of spirit New Yorker award, but uh, was not actually from New York. So anyway, um, Jerome Robbins, born in Lower East Side, um, he studied modern dance in high school, which he really loved, but then he went to NYU for chemistry. 
would have been a very different story if he had stayed there to study chemistry, but he dropped out after a year to pursue dance full-time. He started dancing professionally. He started dancing in the choruses of Broadway shows and also choreographing some pieces himself. But then in 1940, he joined American Ballet Theater or just Ballet Theater as it was called then. Uh, and he was a soloist. He was a major dancer with them for a few years. Um, since he was also a choreographer in 1944, he choreographed and danced in a piece called Fancy Free, which was about sailors on leave, on shore leave in Manhattan. And he had commissioned the then unknown Leonard Bernstein to write the score for this piece. And it was partially inspired by a Paul Cadmus painting called The Fleet's Inn. But Jerome Robbins mostly was inspired by seeing sailors on shore leave in New York and these girls that went out with them because there were so few men around and just the, the tremendous energy of having these sailors come in and experience the city and go out. So it was a lighthearted piece. It was about the three sailors going out, having dates, dancing with different girls. It was kind of a zany thing it was a very different than what we think of like classical ballet being these heavy sort of um serious pieces this was a very american uh very energetic very lighthearted, wonderful piece and from there he felt he wasn't quite finished with this topic and so i'm going to turn it over to you michael to talk about what happened when fancy free became on the town and that takes us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show is literally put together. So as Annika said, Fancy Free obviously happens. And um, Oliver Smith, who designed the ballet, and Paul Fage, I think is how you say his name. If that's not how you say it, I fail. But I think it's, or Fage maybe. Um, uh, who was a dance aficionado, wanted to expand the ballet into a full-fledged musical. Uh, they went ahead and raised the $25,000, which the, led the creatives to get on board with the idea. Uh, and uh, Bernstein suggested that he um, they bring on uh, his friends Adolph Green and Betty Comden to write the lyrics and the book. So uh, they all met and kind of inspired by the success of Oklahoma, uh, the group was uh, the group was all in their 20s and they set out to write an integrated musical um, in the style of Oklahoma, which obviously was, as we've discussed on this podcast, a game changer um, the year prior. So this is 1944. Um, this is like May 1944 at this point, and it had opened in 43. So um, it was definitely like still the outlier in terms of Broadway content being integrated. So they really wanted to be kind of the next the next one that did it quote unquote, or at least they wanted to join themselves as a part of that movement, as opposed to going backward in the way that musicals were developed and presented. And also, I think it's remarkable not to butt in on your section. No, but, no, 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 please. Well, I just love, sometimes you hear about these figures who, who feel so lofty and accomplished now because we've, we know their entire body of work, but um, Betty Comden and Adolph Green were like introduced by mutual friends and then they and Leonard Bernstein had formed this little tiny theater troupe called the reviewers with Judy Holiday. <laughs> and just it's so it's very merrily roll along to me to think of like oh yeah this like little scrappy group of 
young artists in New York City who form this kind of like whatever theater troupe where they're trying to be booked into little tiny clubs like the Village Vanguard and doing this thing. And then now it's like, oh my God, Judy Holiday and and Betty Compton and Adolph Green and Leonard Bernstein were just kind of like hanging out all the time. That it's is so funny. Like amazing. Leonard Bernstein's like the outlier in that, right? Like <laughs> the three it's... of them kind of make sense. And I'm like, Leonard Bernstein? Like that guy? I know. Well, Leonard Bernstein, I know. He well, he also just to me always feels like he was born 45. Yes. You know, so it's like a like it's kind of hard to imagine, even though he always like I think he's known for being like kind of whimsical and like he doesn't feel like a very formal figure necessarily, but at the same time, it's like he does not feel like a a 20-something scrappy dude. But yeah. Anyway, resume. Sorry. No, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, so they they gathered together and they decided they wanted to write something that was direct, simple, honest, and not phony. Then to capture the spirit of a country at war with an uncertain future, um, cramming in as much uh, cramming uh, as much as you can in the time that you have, basically. Uh, and Bernstein was quoted as saying that um, quote the subject matter was light, but the show was serious. Um, and so he really set about to write a symphonic score. Uh, that really drove the show and and created an authentic New York sound and and vibe for the piece. Uh, and funnily enough, they asked their lead producer Oliver Smith, who was also going to design the sets, like, what you know, what in New York do you want to design? Like, what places do you want this show to go? And uh, they uh, and he picked Times Square, Carnegie Hall, Museum of Natural History, and Coney Island, and they managed to get those all into the story um, because they, for a while they really went on this path of not wanting to directly take the three sailor plot of fancy free and instead do something else and they they went they they thought about doing a whole lot of different things uh and basically very quickly landed back on no just keep the sailor idea um so uh they had issues finding a director though this was before jerome robbins considered himself to be a director uh and but they finally got to george abbott who really was like the huge director at the time of um musical comedy it was kind of george abbott was like the king uh and uh, he agreed to do the show, uh, and which helped them secure their final bit of funding, which was actually from uh, the movie studio that would go on to make On the Town and completely, you know, rip it of its story and songs and do what they did with many Hollywood musicals at the time and just use the title and a couple of songs and do their own thing. So, but they also are part of the reason it happened. So we're not going to, you know, like hate on that too much. I also I have not seen the movie, so I can't, I cannot speak to its merits. I haven't either, but... But when I was reading about it and like the movie head, studio head would just didn't like the Bernstein score, which is like a thing where it's like, okay, cool. Sure. You just didn't like the Bernstein. Well, why do the show if you don't like the score? Whatever. Anyway. Whatever. So business, 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 the business, 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 the business of show. Um, That's me as a, as a Jiminy Glick. Uh, So. Uh, we'll keep it <laughs> for all the Jimmy Glick fans. <laughs> so that secured their final bit of funding. And, um, but there were major problems with the script um, Abbott felt and Jerome Robbins felt. And so Robbins uh, wanted Compton and Green replaced by his friend, Arthur Lawrence, which just side note, how crazy it is to think if Arthur Lawrence wrote on the town, what a different show it would, would probably be, probably be. And would we have just gotten like the prequel to West Side Story? Like maybe. Such a such a bubbly, fun character, Arthur you know. Lawrence. So, so this inspired Compton and Green to go away for six days and completely rewrite the show from top to bottom. And they performed this new script uh, for the creative team uh, on on day seven of that. 
and uh, everyone loved it when when AA went wild for it. And uh, Abbott only had two notes, which were he wanted to cut a prologue and an epilogue that were both set in a night court, uh, and that was the only way he would agree to do the show. They agreed, and so and so they went forward. So the show goes into rehearsals in November of the same year. In November, like so, what like Fancy Free happens in what month? Did you say? Did you say a month? Like it's like spring. So like six months later, they're going into rehearsal, basically. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a crazy timeline. I mean, even the Wild. idea that they rewrote the script in like seven days. I mean, like yeah, I don't know how time worked in the forties, but there's this is not the only story that it's like, you know, well, Roger Hammerstein writing ten shows in a decade. Like it's I do so I, fast. I do. I will hold my musical theater opinion that if people didn't have to develop ten shows at a time, we might get a lot more. Uh, work done and quality work done because they could just focus on the things like you know when we do our when we do our writers retreat and growth here like people accomplish writers can accomplish so much if you leave them alone for even a week or two weeks so uh that's your music leader lesson gang is give writers time and space yeah. uh so also, maybe we can blame the internet too um, yeah internet's like pretty it's terrible distracting terrible horrible although you know maybe chat uh chat gbt uh will write our next blockbuster musical do you know about this? Yeah. Have you played on ChatGPT? No. Oh my god, I'm obsessed with that. Okay, that's a whole other thing. So, uh, we should have a ChatGPT game that we play on the show. Okay, all right. Um, so, um, the show went into rehearsals in November uh, and uh, began previews in Boston at the Colonial Theater. And after the first performance, Abbott cut about 25 minutes out of the first act that basically took place between Gaby asking Ivy out and her eventually saying yes. There were all these like comic kind of things that happened in between. And he just like took it all out, saved 25 minutes. Uh, and mo but most importantly, um, over Robin's objections, he also took a massive ballet that was um, at the basically end of act two, a very frenetic ballet and split it in half uh, and insisted on a quiet scene and song to go in between to give the audience a little break, which did become uh, some other time. Uh, and uh, which basically communicated the sentiment in the words of the writers that when you're in love time, is precious stuff and um yeah so so then they freeze the show in boston and they bring it to the, to the adelphi theater um but it's a huge hit it is although scandalously it did not win any tony awards or not nor was it nominated shock horror no i'm kidding because there were no tony awards yet it was 1944 so uh, Pre predates the Tonys. Okay. Predates, the, predates Tonys, the Tonys. Predates the Tonys. Um, but it was a hit, and then it was made into the film, which we mentioned in 1949. Um, uh, kind of a weird film, apparently. Uh, barely the show, but some of that there. I mean, but you know, Gene Kelly, Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, like not, yeah. not, not starry. I think it's a well. I think some people like it. I don't know how the yeah. people who like the musical like it, but yeah. Well, it it also like I feel like the opening number is pretty fabulous because it's it's shot all these different in it all it's shot in all these different locations around New York and that's really exciting and they've preserved the opener. I mean, it's it's a kind of an interesting film apparently, but it does do away with a lot of the score, which one would think was an important part of this. Anyway, um, the show, as you might imagine, was revived several times. On Broadway, it was revived in 1972 uh, with Bernadette Peters starring as Hildy, which is a bit mystifying and intriguing because you would not associate 
the brassy dame that is Hildy um, with Bernadette Peters, but apparently, I don't know, she well, was great. She was nominated place. for a Tony. Well, let's go to my place. I can't do it her really well, but. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 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 that, <laughs> that part alone is just perfect. I, I Only that note is just crystallized. Um, <laughs> I need to get a life. I need to seek treatment. All right, moving on. <laughs> well, no, it's, it is kind of funny to think that the first Tony Award that On the Town was ever nominated for was for Bernadette Peters. That's, is she the only one who got nominated from that revival? Yeah. Wow. It feels a little bit like a like a magnetic poetry Mad Lib situation, you know? Where yeah. It's just like, I mean, yeah. I just I obvi- I am a Bernadette Peters. Like I love her. I, but I can't, that's surprising to me. I know it's a, it's a, it's fascinating. I wish I could have seen it. Um, And then there was a 1998 revival that started in the Delacorte in Central Park um, that starred Leah Delaria and Jesse Tyler Ferguson. And uh, it was a good cast. Mary Testa was nominated for a Tony award. My, my godmother, Mary Testa. Um, So fabulous. And then in 2014, there was another Broadway revival uh, with Tony Yazbek and uh, lots of other, I mean, J. Armstrong Johnson and other good people, Elizabeth Stanley and Alicia Umpress and a lot of fun but people. Elves that was... is stacked, stacked cast. Yeah, yeah, really. And I had, uh, full disclosure, I had worked on a, there was an encores version of that revival, I guess you could say. It was also directed by John Rando at Encores. I don't know if you would say it was the same production because that's a very different format. And it was at Barrington and this was a bunch of years after, but um, I did do On the Town uh, with John Rando at Encores. And that was a lot of fun with Tony Asbeck, who is pretty much born to play Gaby. It's like kind I think of that's, hard for me. Yeah, I think that's I, kind of the uh, general assessment. Yeah. I mean, they just don't make kind of Gaby types anymore. Like, it's very hard to find a true triple threat who also has that kind of, like, old school leading man, like, romance and sweetness. And so I, I Tony Yazbek is Gaby in my mind. It's going to be very hard for me to see someone else do it and be like, oh, yes, that is Gaby and not Tony Yazbek. Um so anyway, so yes, it's it's a popular one to revive. It's been done around the world. Um, and the only thing that really, I think, prevents it from being done more is that it's so large because you need this really major dance ensemble to do these amazing dances. So it's a little bit tough to, to put all those people on a stage nowadays. Oh, also, one thing to note about that original production, which is really kind of fascinating, is it was uh, ra- very racially diverse really just like yeah without calling like the um girl who played ivy was japanese american um i think there were five or six black uh people in the cast who were like in the ensemble but played all sorts of different parts i mean it 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 was an early show to be that as diverse as it was so it was I, i mean i think in fact it broke the color barrier on broadway that's great I mean, like, I mean, that was some of the things I wrote, like, that I read was that, like, it was the first show for people of different races to appear on stage together. And that was at the insistence of Jerome Robbins. Which is really fantastic, because to make a show that is trying to capture New York City in yeah. any time, you would be lying if you pretended that New York City was only white people. It's it's really, 
true to the city itself to to do that. And so that's great that they did that. And yeah, credit to them for that. That's off. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside the opening of On the Town. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So we're going to dive into the beginning of the show. Uh, it's technically its own song. It depends on the album you listen to. Sometimes it's sort of part of New York, New York, the opening number. Sometimes it's considered its own thing called I Feel Like I'm Not Out of Bed Yet um, or something similar. Uh, and it's this really interesting beginning because I think we all think of On the Town starting with New York, New York, which is obviously one of the greatest opening numbers, one of the greatest songs about New York City, full of this energy and pizzazz and just joy. Uh, but that's not actually how the show opens. And I think it is such a smart and interesting thing to look at because you could very easily start the show with uh, exactly what will happen, which is this kind of whistle indicating that it's 6 a.m. It's the beginning of the shore leave for the three guys. Um, they're they're bursting onto the scene. Uh, they're bursting into the city. They're ready to start this 24 hours that's going to change their life. So that would be a kind of conventional start, but that's not what we have going on here in this song. Um, we have something that's a lot more interesting and complex. And I think it's so fascinating because this is such an early musical in the history of musicals. And we see so many different styles of thing present in this show. And I think here is a really good example of how those different styles are being uh, introduced to us, uh, woven into this narrative, made a part of this show while also still being very traditionally a musical as we know it so it doesn't really feel like you know if you look at something like showboat which is obviously much earlier than this we have these like oh now it's the operetta moment now it's the this moment now it's the ballet moment um this is an integrated musical in terms of its different styles but bernstein is brilliantly brilliantly telling us right now what we're about to be in for in terms of styles, but also in terms of um, what we're looking at in this show, which is not only the show, a show about three sailors in New York and those stories, it's also a show very much about, about this city. So let's dive in and see how he starts this. This is so interesting. It's such a bold start. It's quiet. There's barely any music under the voice. There's just that one initial chime. Um, and the music is low strings playing one continuous note. So it sounds like someone's snoring. The scale of this is so small, but also Bernstein's musical portraiture is really just beautiful here. Um, we have a dock worker. This is just a guy working on the dock. The boys are about to come off this ship, but we don't quite know that yet. Um, an operatic bass voice, not a voice you often hear in a musical. Um, so right off the bat, Bernstein is telling us that the score is going to have a foot in different musical world. We're we're hearing opera right off the top. Um, and we're hearing opera in this 
in this unusual place. We're hearing this kind of working class guy who's on the dock um, with this beautiful operatic voice. So it's a kind of combination of something that we consider like high class, fancy opera, um, different form with this person who is not what we would associate an opera um, voice being connected with, which is like a very working class person. So Bernstein's already mixing it up and telling us that this this is, show is going to involve a lot of different things, which we indeed are going to have. We're going to have a few different musical styles. We're going to have classical ballet. We're going to have a lot of different things happening here. Um, and this is such a beautiful line just to start with. I feel like I'm not out of bed yet on this kind of droning, low string snoring. Um, it keeps falling lower, this line, and then having these little moments of climbing slightly back up as though he's trying to climb out of bed and failing. Um, and it ends on that very low note, like he's lost the battle, he's sunk back into bed with a comforter on again. It's so evocative, this. Um, and it's so quiet. It's so little. It's just a voice, this one beautiful voice. Um, but there's nothing accompanying him almost at all. And there's no one else singing with him yet. Um, really small scale, really capturing that silence, that quiet before dawn, um, no matter where you are in the city. He's working, but it's still so sleepy. Um, and then, of course, after we get that sink down to the low note in bed it has literally a musical yawn um which is just emphasizing that image of this this is a guy just going about his life he's yawning he's tired um he's just left his bed um and it i love this too because we're getting a glimpse into this character a little bit which is a character we'll never see again um, not important, not even given a name, really. Um, we're just getting a little portrait of his life, which is giving us such a beautiful New York moment in the first instances of the show. Because New York is this, right? It's lots of individual stories you very briefly meet and then you move on from. For the sun is warm, but my blanket's warmer. So the same voice continues. Sun is warm, so it's not that he wants to shut out the world, but it's better in bed. And we hear that his lady's there too. So this this all sounds just lovely. Um, and then we get this wonderful harmony on sleep, sleep in your lady's arms. It sounds like a lullaby, which it is, although for an adult, you know, they're sort of singing to him, um, imagining, remembering him himself sleeping in that morning. And it paints a nice picture of who else is on this dock. These guys seem lovely. Um, and I love, too, that these are, you know, tough dock workers. They're singing in this gorgeous tight harmony. Um, New York is full of all kinds. It's full of dock workers singing opera and uh, operatic quartets working along with him. And then, of course, we have this the first little runner uh, in the show, a nice way to remind us what time it is, which is going to be a huge thing throughout the show. These sailors only have 24 hours, so we're going to need to clock that. Um, 
And we're going to start the clock on the show. We're very aware of time from the start because we have this guy asking this other guy and annoying him with the, his perpetual questions. Oh, let my old woman still sleep in. Oh. So the second verse is about his lady. We're getting a little more about his life, but we're also getting more instrumentation. After the first verse, which really had almost nothing, it was pretty much a cappella. Uh, now we're getting these instruments slowly coming in. It feels like the orchestra is starting to wake up along with everyone else. Just slowly we're being eased into the dawn, the sun rising all of these elements coming together to, to really give us that image of what this morning is like. And it's, it's really nice. It's a nice and subtle touch. So night I was walking the baby. So the third verse here is about his baby. So we've moved from him wanting to be in bed to him wanting to be with his lady to now we have something else, which is him explaining about his baby and giving us a little more details about the, the night that he had. He was up all night with his baby, which as someone with a baby, that definitely feels real to me. Um, also, Shout out to Involved Dad of 1944. Up with the baby. Thank you very much. That's a nice touch. Thank you. Um, and here the musical yawn that we heard in the first verse becomes the baby's cry, which is just so wonderful and clever that Bernstein's made the same phrase mean completely three different things with no lyrics at all. It's just the music. And we're getting a real glimpse into his life. Uh, his baby, his wife, he clearly loves so much. And then the the part of the song that has been a lullaby for him has now become an actual lullaby for the baby, who's presumably still asleep. This takes a slightly wistful tone, like he's imagining the baby asleep with his wife, um, and he's sad to be away from them. But it also feels like it, we've kind of completed a little moment here. We've gotten such a beautiful little portrait of this anonymous dock worker and a sense of the tone of the day. Sunny, beautiful, full of these little stories. Um wistful beautiful and we've gotten a glimpse of the world of new york city so and then of course we get this runner again of the annoying guy asking for a third time what time it is um which is a nice you know reminder and is contrasting a lot with what we're about to get
So after that wonderful little small scale beginning with this dock worker singing, we get this real energy. The city literally rushes awake. There's this musical steam whistle, a six o'clock whistle. I'm actually not sure if that was a real thing that happened at six o'clock or if it's just for the purposes of this show. Um, but it definitely feels like it is announcing that the day has officially begun. And we get this brassy, brash, uneven melody that sounds like things kind of lumbering into place, like storefronts opening, maybe things opening up. And it feels a little bit dangerous. It sounds a little like West Side Story um, here, which is interesting. It's obviously a later portrait of the city, but we're getting a glimpse of that sort of sense of there is a part of the city that's a real energetic undercurrent that can be dangerous too. Um, so this is like one of the options for what the city will be. It could be dangerous, could be, you know, uneven, it could be a little bit aggressive, but maybe not. And then from there, we jump into this great warm march, that kind of dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And after this moment of chaos of everything kind of clanging together, which feels especially harsh after the smoothness and softness and quietness of the intro beginning here with the dock worker. Um, but then this march feels much more organized. It feels like the hustle and bustle, like the chaos of the whistle is waking everybody up, startling everybody. You know, you've got the metal glang clanging and the gangs and whatever you're hearing there. Um, now it feels like people in a rush, it feels like crowds, it feels like organized chaos in a much more joyous way. Um, and then you get this little da 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 which is a, a little a lot lighter than this other thing. And it really feels like you're getting suddenly a layering of different kinds of people in this world. Um, the people who are a little bit lighter foot and the people who are much more like distinct, you know, kind of a stomping stride in that first uh, marching sound. But you can't beat the energy or the excitement. You're going to be seeing some dancing over this, obviously, and this would be a gift to a choreographer because you you just have New York City captured here. Not the sleepy pre-dawn city that we first met, but the bustling city that the sailors are about to enter into. Come on, Jamie, hurry up! 24 hours! Hey, why don't you look where you're going? You think it was your first time in New York? It is! And then, of course, we get the introduction of our main trio, um, the three sailors who are going to spend the day in New York City. And we get a little bit of dialogue establishing their useful non-New York positivity versus the more jaded, cranky New Yorker. And just their sheer excitement at being here and also that they only have 24 hours, which, you know, this show does a great job of establishing early on something we need to know, you know. Um, but then we get this fabulous overlapping trio of the three of them singing uh, New York, New York, which establishes that each of them will be equally a part of the story, but also captures their sheer joy at meeting this city. And I love that the melody on New York, New York is climbing higher, just as the first phrase, the dock worker saying, um, I feel like I'm not out of bed yet, climbed low as though falling into bed, this really rises. It feels like a skyscraper. It feels like something that's just getting bigger and bigger and exploding into the air. Um, so you can really, you really get a portrait of what New York is for these three sailors, just big and brassy and uh, 
awe inspiring, but also just fun. You know, they're ready to do it. Um, and I also love that it's a hell of a town, even though that was too spicy for the movie and they made it a wonderful town, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, these are after all sailors, they're young and full of optimism and enthusiasm for the city, but they're still young guys who swear. Uh, it's just a nice element. They're, they're placing us after we have this operatic beginning, they're kind of throwing us this very contemporary, very kind of street, um, language here too. So it's, it's not going to be all this elevated style. Some of it is going to be just like right down on the ground. So I'm going to stop there. So I don't, uh, I can't do all of New York, New York, unfortunately, because it would be just hours and hours. There's so much in that opening number. We get all sorts of character stuff. We get all sorts of portrait stuff. Um, but I just wanted to dive into that because I really love that about this show. Um, I love that Bernstein starts this with this guy, this one random guy we're never going to see again, um, being tired, starting his day. Uh, it really, really reminds us that this is a show about a place and a time as much as it is about the story of these three sailors. Um, you just get a, gl a tiny glimpse of another life, but you also really get this thing that perfectly sets up um, the main song here to be even more exciting and huge than it is. If you just went right in with the energy of New York, New York, it would be super fun and great. But the fact that you've now contrasted it with this sleepy, beautiful, lyrical um, opening just makes it even more striking. Um, and really sets us off in the right place. It's special that these sailors have this joy for the city and we feel it just as much as anyone else. It's gonna also, at the end of the show, when when they say goodbye and we get the next three guys, it reminds you that these, these stories are just happening all over, all the time. And New York is full of people with different styles, with different sounds, with different stories, with different feelings, with different things happening in their lives. Um, so the fact that Bernstein chose to open it with this, I think, is such a beautiful reminder of this, that this is as much about New York City as it is about anything else. And it is gorgeous. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with On the Town, both internal and external. As you alluded to earlier, I do think it's important to talk about the um, this show as a wartime musical and like much like we did, I think we did talk about this in the Oklahoma episode, but the, the musicals of that early 40s period, and this is certainly one of them, do kind of, first off, just World War II is obviously like this cataclysmic event that is taking up so much space in everyone's mind. So in some ways, everything is about it on some level, right? Like everything, it's going to play into it on some level. But this is a musical about three people who are shipping out. They're not really sure if they're going to come back. They don't know what the future holds. Um, and yet they, they fall in love in New York City in 24 hours. As it's considered in the canon, I think it's kind of thought of as a fluff piece. Um, and I don't really know that it is a fluff piece. I think in some ways it's like drama or its seriousness almost holds it back in a weird way and I, that would be like my like my notes or challenges how do you continue even though the score is very joyful and their situations are very 
um, fun and silly, it does have that kind of, there's just, a, I don't want to say density, but just a heaviness about it that, that does kind of feel inescapable on a certain level. And I don't think it's just because I'm staring at like blocked out type writer pages. So, uh, but, uh, so Annika, talk, talk about your feelings about it as a wartime musical and, and, and how that impacts the show. It is an interesting question because it's definitely there in the show, but at the same time, there are parts of the show that are that are very fluffy and light. I mean, it's funny because I've always struggled a little bit with the names in this show because I do find that that's almost feels like a remnant to me of a slightly lighter version of the show. Um, yes, because the you know the characters are like, I mean, they're all very funny, like Claire de Lune and. Um, you know, like Hildy's boss is like S Uberman. So it's yes. Superman. Like, yes. you know, there's like all these kind of weird like jokes in the names. And like, I think Pidkin is like Judge Pitkin bridge work. It's like, they're all. Yeah, it's a lot um, of, there's a lot of like, yeah, just like, yeah, yeah, yes. It's goofy. It's really goofy in a way that I'm like, you know, fun. it's funny, but also like you, I think you are really asked to feel for these characters ultimately. Um so that to me, I'm like, well, I, I would kind of wish that sheen of it were removed a little. And I, I wonder if that was more present in their earlier script. Um, but I think that this is a show that, yes, I mean, first of all, as I talked about in the song analysis, like there's, and as you talked about earlier, like time is very present. Um, and there's really that sense of like, uh, this is going to be 24 hours. We, we meet them before dawn. You know, they're, they're just like bursting onto the scene. They ha we're very aware of time passing. Um, and then at the end, I think it's a kind of a beautiful moment that they don't ultimately say goodbye in the text, really. Like the girls come and they all hug, but then their goodbye is only something that we see as they're getting back on the boat because more sailors are coming out to say, you know, New York, New York, and it's, it's time for them to kind of cycle through. Um, and I think that's very poignant. The other thing that I think that they did, which you mentioned earlier too, is like adding some other time, I think is, is kind of in my mind, the being alive of this score um, and of this show, which is to say, like, the song that kind of pulls all the rest of it together in that way. Um, because I think there's such a poignant thing about having these characters kind of say, oh, well, we didn't get to do all this stuff. Um, but we'll be able to do that some other time, you know, both because they may never see each other again, because like, you know, who, who even knows where these people are all from, like where Chip and Ozzy and Gaby are going to go back to. It's, it, you know, it's a little much to think that they're all going to come back to New York to like reunite with the girls that they spent 12 hours with, basically. Um, but also the casualness of the phrase some other time, which sounds like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll catch up some other time. Um really, I think, under, really highlights um, the seriousness of what they are actually doing, which is that, you know, it's casual to say we'll catch up some other time, but these are sailors fighting an active war. You know, these three characters might be dead in a week. Um, this might be the last thing that they do. Um, it might be the last time they ever see each other for a number of reasons, but um 
one of them is that, you know, they are literally fighting a war. So I think that there's really brilliant moments like that where you just lock in on that reality that as much as there's all the silliness happening and they're going from club to club and Lucy Schmieler is is sneezing all over the place, um, you do actually come to believe that they have real feelings for each other. Although I'm also a little bit sometimes I'm like, you love each other? It's been 12 hours. Right, yeah, <laughs> there's, that, there's that there's that whole know? thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but whatever. You don't want to see a real-time date like with people being like, mm, this was promising. Um, yeah, you really do feel like they, they've come to care for each other. They've made this connection. They've had this incredibly special thing. And who knows what the future will bring. So um, there's that bittersweetness that just comes back through that I think it would be a very different show if they were like workers on an oil rig who got to spend 24 hours in New York and then they go back onto their oil rig. You know, you have to be aware of that, that reality that um, a lot of people, you know, that what the show is portraying was true for a lot of people in the audience as well. You know, that they, they have these people that they love that they haven't had enough time with perhaps that they have only gotten started with. And those people are watching the show aware that whatever experience you have with the people who are fighting, who are away, um, is only what you have. And that might be it. Um, you know, and Betty Comden's husband was, was away fighting. Like it's, it's a very, um, it's a very stark reality that I think the show just tips into enough to make it feel, um, real in a way and i think too like as you're mentioning it like some of it the construction of the show has an old-fashioned as a as like the off of the prototype of oklahoma and the integrated musical and yet still it does it definitely has those remnants of musical comedy that are like not as well disguised as mm-hmm. the musical comedy elements i'd say of um of Oklahoma or even like Brigadoon, which I think I don't, is Brigadoon? Brigadoon is either 44 or 45. It's right in this same period, but I think it, or it, those are, this is that period like where I, I think everyone's trying to do the Oklahoma thing. And in some ways I think on the town is kind of the clunkiest version of that on, on a mm-hmm. certain level. And I, I, that is a little shoot from the hip take, but just because of those character names and the, Oh yeah, well we got to get in this, the sneezing bit and the, all the little like you know vaudevillian musical comedy type you know kind of yeah uh what's the word i'm looking for but the tropes of or just the the gimmicks of sort that are that are left over and so i think like it is so it is taking that integrated musical and 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 there's a sophistication about it because of the bernstein score and even just the amount of ballet character dancing that jerome robbins does and it's also dealing in a world that like all of these people are living i think that like plays into its success is like it's timing like if on the town happens two years later i don't know that it's as successful as it is right in 1944 yeah and it's funny because it is a remarkable show in terms of like how early it was for its integration of these plot elements but also like I would argue that there are a lot more things in this soup than there are in in like even Oklahoma. I mean, you do like 
you have Ooh, them fighting words. Them fighting well, words. Keep going. No, no, Keep no. going. I mean, no, it's good. I know. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying it's better than Oklahoma, but all I'm saying is that like Oklahoma has kind of a specific style of music and a certain kind of plot, and there's a lot of dancing. But this, I think, Bernstein is bringing in sort of classical music and opera more actively than it is in Oklahoma. Um, the dancing is more present in this show than it is in Oklahoma, I would say. Like, Oklahoma only has one dream ballet, and this right, one right. has, like, three. Um, you know, th there's just a lot of different, and the, like, vaudevillian elements are, like, more, you know, vaudevillian, and there's a, those runners. It's like, there's there's just a lot in this um and more characters so it, it's a it's a it's a big show with a lot of plates that are all kind of kept spinning in a really remarkable way but the other thing i will say that the the war makes present in this show which when i was rereading it i was like wow this show is and i don't love this word but i don't know what other word to use in, to do this this is a horny ass it's show. really really horny yeah, especially the women, which yes. is fascinating for a show this early. Well, as you say, and let's t let's talk about it because I, that was the next topic that I wanted to bring up. Is like it portrays women in a pretty progressive sense, and like I, you know, as we talked about in Oklahoma, I think Lori gets a bad rap in terms of mm -hmm. how you know people thinking of her as one thing when in reality the text is like she's another. But um, you know, particularly using that as a contrast point. Lori is not saying, hey, Curly, come on up into the house and I'll show you a good time because we both know that that's what we want. Meanwhile, Hildy's like, no, 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 I'm going to take you up to my place. And like Claire Deloon, like all the, like they are very much empowered women. Yeah. And like the the easy answer I think would be like, when I ask why, why is that? The easy answer is, or an annoying answer that would probably make me roll my eyes is like, well, you have a woman on the creative team and therefore like that's that voice was present and like, no, no, no. But I think it actually just has more to do with like the New York character of the piece in a lot of ways that these are women who are out here. Like they are not, you know, not that there's anything wrong with being a stay at home mom and a housewife or living on a you know farm. That's a different kind of hard work, but like they are just subject to a different reality that is go, 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 go. And that's not really portrayed in musical theater in the same way at this time. Certainly not the horniness element. Certainly not to the degree that these are young people who want to have yeah. fun in their 24 hours in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And But everybody is. I mean, the other yes. thing is, like, Madame Dilly is, like, sexy all over the place. You know, Ivy, who is kind of traditionally, I think, would be your sort of virginal ingenue, you know, has to sing a whole song about how she can't have sex because she wants to be a singer. You know, it's like every character, Lucy Schmeler and Judge Pitkin get it on. I mean, yeah, like, right. it, it's all, spoiler alert, but like, you know, it's it's really everywhere. But yeah, I think the war is a part of that as well. It's like, you know, men were gone. Women were working, um, were more empowered to lead their lives, but also there were fewer people for them to be with. So I think you're seeing a little bit that sense of like women had to like be more aggressive to get the men as opposed to traditionally, you know, men are choosing the ladies, but it's like when you, you know, you have a wartime circumstance, you have fewer men, the women necessarily are going to have to step up and be a little bit more uh devoted to to getting the dates that they want and getting the sex that they want and getting you know what they want so i think that is part of it 
Um, and yeah, certainly, I mean, it always helps to have a woman on the creative team, a rare sure. thing. Right. A very in... rare thing. I mean, especially in this time, like how many yeah. women are out here writing? I mean, yeah. I'm, how many are, are being produced? Let's put it that way. Yeah. How many women are out here being produced on Broadway? Not that many. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's part of it too. And also, I mean, I think whenever you have the threat of death in any time, in any story, the horniness increases exponentially because it's sort sure. of like, I think that's just a biological thing where it's like, you know, both nicety is thrown out the window, but also that sort of biological, like, ah, we must mate, death right. is on the rise. So there, they, you know, that's in the soup too. But I do, yeah, the women in this show are remarkable. I mean, do you think there's um, anything about the women in the show that has aged poorly or that doesn't reflect well in in now 2023? Um, not, you know, I I would say it's not that it's aged poorly. I, I have a specific... I have always felt that this show has... Like, there's one, there's one of these pairs that, to me, needs more development that don't feel quite like they've figured out exactly what those two are supposed to be doing um and ironically enough it's it's ozzy and claire which are the parts that comden and green played themselves mm -hmm. so you would think that they were they would be the ones that were would be kind of the best written because they would want to give themselves the best material um but i i do feel like i don't quite like, I feel like Hildy, like all of these trios have a sort of generative plot engine for their particular romance, right? It's like Gaby and Ivy, you have like him idolizing this girl that he saw on the subway and then trying to find her. And like, they, they you know, there's so much through dance and this kind of dream girl idea. And we get a sense of who Ivy is from her class with Madame Dilly and this, you know, she's not who she says she is. And she's sort of this cooch girl that she wants to be a something else. And so I think you get that you get Hildy and Chip, which is like this innocent little like farm boy, basically with his outdated guidebook, which is so funny. And then Hildy, this kind of d brassy dame who's like showing him what's what. So that's kind of their comedy is their, their um, kind of flipped traditional response there. Um, but with Ozzie and Claire, I kind of don't quite feel like their generative like circumstances quite propel them in the same way that that the other ones do. Um, like it's kind of funny that he looks like a caveman and she's an anthropologist. But then I just I don't know. To me, it doesn't exist quite in the same world as the other duo uh, duos. So I mean, I do um, wonder. I, I do wonder if like part of that is because they as the original performers were able to paper over a lot like yeah and, and because they knew what they were doing and so there was a level of it was working so so well with the two of them that it just like wasn't on the page and so like what exists on the page is not as is not flushed as out. like flushed out because they didn't need it to be because they were making all those leaps themselves in however they were characterizing them or doing certain things or whatnot. I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah. That. I think that must point. be part of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, it's, I have to say as a dramaturg, it's, it's not unusual actually. I've, I've worked with writers who are playing a part in the show that they are writing and that that part is usually the most difficult part for a writer to write. Um, mm -hmm. It, which you would think would not be that way, but but there is something exactly about that that it's sort of like because they are that character, 
they they can either make the bit work without it being in the text or it's sort of feels sometimes it kind of feels like too personal and it's kind of becomes a journal it, like it, it just enters yes, into a different yeah. category of thing so so it's not that i wouldn't say that that aged i wouldn't say that that has aged poorly necessarily because i don't think that there's anything about claire that is specifically like feels icky in a way um i just have always kind of felt like that's the duo that needs the most help um yeah i don't know do you feel like any of them are particularly no i mean i think it's i i agree with you that if there is one that to me is for the dramaturgy of forgetting trademark Anika Chapin, um it's oh. uh, it is ozzy and claire like i think they are the least um remarkable in some ways um yeah and I think it's, be I mean, and we'll, we can, we'll get to this as probably a good transition to favorite things, but um, I, I think they're the hardest ones for me to remember. Although I enjoy their, like when I, you know, went back and read the show and listened to it, I was like, oh, th their number in the, in the museum is like really fun and great. And I was like, oh, this is a fun number. But I do think you need kind of, you need performers to elevate yeah. that material. And, and often I think they are the there are other characters that seemingly take up more there there are other roles that take up more oxygen that i think probably get more um like attention paid to them because like hildy for instance like just takes up a lot of energy because she's you know a, a, what i can cook like is such a famous song and like all these different things like it just i yeah. think there is a challenge present within within the two of them yeah, and it's funny. This is a PSA to people who are listening to this who might want to use Carried Away as an audition song. Please do not use Carried Away as an audition song. Um, what you said about their scene um, and and what we've been talking about here, like I think it carries through to that song, which is that it is it is funny in context, but it is not actually a funny song on its own. And I've seen so many women come in singing that song which makes sense because it shows that you have a great range because it goes very high and, it, you know, kind of belty and also are a funny person. But like you don't in an audition, you don't have enough time to establish that you are funny uh, singing that song. So it just seems that you are not funny because you are singing a song that is not particularly funny. Like the song actually doesn't do any work for you. So don't sing it. It just makes you seem not as funny as you would like to be, basically. Annika Chapin, CSA. Yeah. So with don't... that. <laughs> <laughs> so with that why don't we why don't we take it to our favorite things these are a few of my favorite things where we talk about some of our favorite things about on the town so annika what is your favorite song in on the town you know it, this is unusual for me because normally i'm an up-tempo fun number song kind of gal um so you'd think that i would go for something like um you got me which is I really love, but actually lucky to be me is, is really, I just think Gaby's songs are really beautiful in this score. And I love yeah. that song. You know, I'm really glad you said lucky to be me because I, as I was listening to it yesterday, I was like, this is a song talk about the last segment. I was like, this is a song that I feel like people don't sing enough in their book. Like people don't have that song in their book. And I'm actually like, I think it's actually, I, I can't stand lonely. I actually kind of can't stand lonely town, but that has more to do with my college experience. We had like, everybody had to sing that there was like a class, like an intro to musical theater class I had to take that I it was about performing musical theater, but I had to take it. And all the guys had to sing lonely town. And I was like, eh. so I have like a, a visceral reaction to lonely town. Um, but like i think lucky me is a great song i think that's a great choice yeah it's just very very pretty 
What about you? Well, so at the risk of like being so basic, I I mean, I sing New York to New York to myself all the time, and it's 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 such a great like hook. It's such a great thing. Like, so it's hard for me to not answer that. In an attempt to be more interesting, but perhaps even less interesting, I can cook too is a great is a famous song for a reason, you know. And like, it's it's we haven't spent a lot of time talking about Hildy, though I imagine we're about to as we get to favorite character. But um, you know, it's 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 good. And I, and I will say, I get this is one of those albums I do get a bit of album fatigue listening to it. There's just a lot. It's 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 a dense score for me. That doesn't mean it's not good. I I I think honestly, this is a show that. I hope I get to do someday because I think that will make me fall in love with it more than just like reading it, seeing it and, and whatnot. I think it's, it, it must be so much fun to work on. It really is so much fun to work on. It is. It's, and it's, it's ultimately happy and joyful and, and all the things, but like there's so much opportunity for comedy and dance and like, and discovery. And I, I think it's probably so much fun. Yeah, and just so many opportunities for amazing actors in ensemble parts to stand out and just put their stamp on. I mean, it's it's just a lot of fun. So who's your favorite character in On the Town? Um, well, you know, again, I really... I mean, Hildy is definitely up there. I love Hildy and Chip's dynamic with each other. I just kind of love that relationship. I think it's so funny and weird. I I thought I might go with one of the smaller characters, but I'm going to save that for my miscellaneous. Um, okay. okay. I'm actually, I'm just going to go with Gaby, weirdly enough, even though wow. that's a surprise choice. I just always find myself really like loving him in a way that there's like such a sweetness to that character um, in a way that he could be totally a boring blank, but I always find myself caring about him. So rare, rare ingenue choice, Gaby. Well, a male ingenue choice. We, we really don't do a lot of that. Yeah, that's true. Um, but in, along the same vein, I'm actually going to go with Chip as my favorite character. Um, I, I really like Chip, and it's I, it's crazy. I In some ways, I, I it feels like Hildy is the obvious answer because she gets so much attention and, like, Hild and has amazing songs and and gets to be outrageously funny and part of me wanted to answer claire because i also really like claire i think it's an interesting i see the potential in the role i guess is what is 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 the the way that i can both answer what i answered in the last section and say that maybe she's my favorite is like i see the potential um but i i think chip is just still i love i love a i love a dumb derpy boy i gotta be honest yeah, I mean, he is a dumb derby boy. And also, I mean, shout out to Leah Delaria and Jesse Tyler Ferguson playing those two parts. I, just that duo was so perfect because he was so kind of like wide-eyed and she was so brassy and it was just hilarious to see those two together. So, And um, right, and same with Jeremy Johnson and Alicia Umfress in the latest revival who are mm. both friends and I thought did great. Like it, it's so yeah. fun to watch them on stage. Like they had such great chemistry. And so uh, right back... Yes. Echoing. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about on the town? Um, well, I will say, so one of the many things that I admire about the show is the many, many runners in this, in this show. They like, I mean, you could do a whole podcast just devoted to the structure of the show and how they managed to pull through all of these different elements and the 
the transitions about having the like cop chasing them from the very beginning and the like little old lady and the, you know, there's all these things that kind of build, accumulate, accumulate over time. Um, but there are also such solid jokes that come back again and again that are related to nothing else almost in this plot. You know, you've got Pitkin with his I understand thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Lucy Schmeler never showing up to the right place. That's funny. You know, to a degree, you've got Madame Dilly, although just she just comes back. You've got the girl who's constantly talking about so so I said, you know, the sort of like, and then I said, you know, the, the like the two girls talking about the boss. Um, and then one of my favorite, 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 favorite jokes just of all time is, and, and also this is so indelibly Mariah Grandi, uh, the amazing person who did it at Encores, the joke about Gaby being depressed that Ivy (laughs) stood him up and then they're at this nightclub and the singer sings the most depressing song about, you know, I thought I had a date with you. I guess I just don't read. I wish I was dead and buried. It's so extreme and it's so perfectly the like the complete wrong thing for that moment. And the fact that she keeps showing up at different uh, nightclubs. Yes, yes. Singing it in Spanish as, as Dolores Dolores, which just means sad, sad. Like... I find that joke so funny and so silly and so perfect for the plot um, and such a good like inspiration for them to all sing You Got Me, um, which might be hard to like just spontaneously get into that I just, I love that so much. So a shout out to the to the running jokes in this show uh, in general, but specifically to that <laughs> running joke, which is just, Mwah, chef's kiss i love it what about you so my favorite miscellaneous thing is is definitely tangential to on the town and it is related to jerome robin the way i'm gonna get it it's related to jerome robin's broadway and the suite of on the town that is in jerome robin's broadway but so um i had the great good fortune of helping um put together that show that existed in a variety of places in weird ways when the muni did it for its 100th anniversary season and then tested it the their 50th season um but it's not really a show that like exists on paper um so there was a quite a lot of like archival searching and digging and looking for stuff so that it could be done um contracts all the things that's a whole other that's a podcast in and of itself to be honest but a little mini doc but um as we were going through i was at the lincoln center library going through some of the boxes that exist um from i think it's from jerome robbins it's like his notes and papers and um, one of the papers uh, that was in Jerome Robbins, and it was talking about why, basically, like, they were trying to figure out how to end the show, and he wanted to end it with some other time and, and this kind of thing. And he just scribbled, and his, it's in his handwriting. Um, the quote is, and I, I might have said this before at some point on the podcast, but um, it's, it's literally, quote, Broadway is great, but true love is better. And I just think it's the most lovely, like sentiment and it very much encapsulates like what his approach with on the town was but also why he wanted that to end the retrospective of his career that like yes and for him like yeah obviously what's that story is about love (laughs) it's like the most romantic musical of all time but this and the way that it um captures that within the big city setting he felt was very i think indicative of 
his life experience or something that was very like meaningful to him. So that is one of those quotes that I just like carry with me in my heart. Like Broadway is great, but true love is better. That is beautiful. I just, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know how specifically it has to do with the show on the town. I think it does for me, it does, but it's not really a show about Broadway, but uh, it's a show about New York and New York is yeah. Broadway. And what is Broadway? What is New York without Broadway? That is true. Say that. That is true. And that will bring us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. We've alluded to it. We've said it. I, as a piece of integrated musical theater, it absolutely pushes the form forward, particularly in the in the sense of dance, uh, particularly in the in the arena of dance and musical sophistication. It really is doing something that is um, beyond its years. And uh, certainly, when you think about like the group of them as being in their twenties and what they were able to accomplish, you know, they're not dealing with a lifetime of experience. I mean, Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein had basically had a full career prior to doing Oklahoma. You know what I mean? They have a lifetime of experience, and this group doesn't. And looking at what they accomplished, I, it's quite incredible. And obviously, um, you know, gives hint to what the they will each accomplish, both individually as pairs um, and whatnot in their varied careers. So I, I think it is important um, for that reason. Um but Annika, what else do you think is the show's place uh, in the in the canon? What's its corner of the sky? I mean, it's it's funny because I'm actually surprised it doesn't loom even larger than it does. Because I feel like it's sort of you could sometimes forget it as a sort of real Titanic original Broadway show, um, and I don't know if that's because it's not done as often because of the size of it or the dancingness of it but I, I mean I think it's just such a remarkable thing I mean for all of the elements for the comedy I think it's interesting that structurally you've it, it's a very very well built show for a number of reasons um, you don't have the traditional ingenue couple and the comedy couple you've got sort of ingenue couple and then two sort of comedy couples you know it's like there's it's doing all these different things that you will see in different shows over time um to various degrees so i think it has like a lot of a lot of influence over other things and um certainly has introduced many many songs to the uh canon um in a really remarkable way but yeah i think sort of just i'd say of of all of them, like the the careers of all of those people, um, it, it has to really be ultimately given credit for that because my God, the, that is a team of titans for real. And this really started them off all doing their own thing in such a beautiful way to make this show that just completely works. And then going on to to be the the amazing Broadway figures that they were for so long. So that's what I would say. 
I think, I mean, I think it's also worth noting that it is an original story fully based on, I mean, yes, based on a ballet and a conception that like happened in however long fancy, I can't quite figure out how long fancy free actually was, if it was like a 20 minute ballet or whatever, but even so it's really just like the sentence of that ballet and then taken completely into another realm with a show. And like, that is, um, you know, no small achievement in any day and age, let alone, um, by a bunch of people who didn't really know what they were doing so or allegedly didn't know what they were doing because they're you know a bunch of upstarts but yeah 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 no it's i mean it's crazy remarkable for that and not feeling like any of those plots are really like shortchanged and i mean it's like such a weird it's it it's an amazing piece of theater well that about wraps it up for our deep dive into on the town but first, Annika needs to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Annika, what is our clue for the next show we'll be getting to know? So here is your teaser for the next episode. This show that we will be discussing uses 281 candles per performance. And some mathematician out there should do the, that I should figure out how many that means they've used over the course of their, um, their tenure at a yes. particular, you know, cause they've been around for a minute. Yeah. Also, I presume they're mechanical at this point, but I think, I think they are. Yeah, they are. But how long were they not? It's more interesting when they're not more questions. Maybe Danger. we could just make the entire episode about the candles in this show. We probably could. Honestly, the caper yeah. will solve the mysteries. We will pull back. We'll pull back the mask, if you will. <gasps> we'll take you into the catacombs, past the point of no return, with people knowing what this show is. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Oh Lord! Subtlety. That's subtlety. All I ask of you. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. We will see you next time. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs>